Is he a hero or a villain? I know it sounds like an interesting question, but actually that's the beauty of storytelling. In storytelling, you can make someone who starts out as a villain, and by the end of the story, you can turn them into a hero. Think about the Grinch or Ebenezer Scrooge. Of course, you can also do the opposite. You can have someone that starts out kind of heroic as a good character with good qualities, but by the end of the story, it's pretty clear that they're more of a villain. Think uh, Michael uh, Corleone in The Godfather or Prince Hans in the Frozen One movie. Well, this is what storytelling can be like, and the storytelling we have for today's judge well, kind of leaves us asking some questions. Is he a hero, a villain, or is he both? Well, that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode of By the Verse. Thanks for joining me on By the Verse. This is a podcast all about God's Word. Today, we're going to be dealing with Judges chapter 11 and 12. Now, just before this, in Judges 11, the people who lived in Gilead, which is east of the Jordan River, have been under Ammonite oppression, and the Ammonites are mounting another offensive against them. So at the end of chapter 10, we find the people of God searching for leadership. Leadership vacuums will get filled. The problem is, that they don't always get filled with godly capable leaders. It is usually the case that when you go looking for something, well, you find it. When it's something that has the potential to change your life, like a relationship, a job, a friendship, leadership in the spiritual sense or otherwise, you should be very careful how you go about seeking those things out. Let me show you what I mean. Let's hop into Judges chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us, if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. 
Now, in the previous chapter, the leaders of the people have a confrontation with God. They seem to repent, but by the end of the chapter, there are two things that are missing. Number one, we don't see God appointing a judge. There's no mention of God raising up a person. And there's also no mention of the people seeking God for the leadership that they needed. But at the end of the chapter, they're just scratching their heads, trying to figure out who they can get to deal with this Ammonite army. So in chapter 11, they find their own answer. They have a leadership vacuum, and instead of seeking God and asking Him to raise up a leader, they came up with their own solution to the problem. Sometimes our own solutions work out okay, and this particular solution will be just okay. But it's going to be a far cry from the type of leadership that God had given the people in the past. And it's for this simple reason that God didn't necessarily give them this leader. Jephthah is someone that they chose and not necessarily someone whom God chose. As the son of a prostitute, Jephthah would not have normally been raised with uh, his father. But think back to Abimelech's story. We know how that worked out. It appears that in this case, Jephthah's father, for whatever the reason, had adopted him and allowed him to be raised as his son along with his brothers. But after his father died, the other brothers took Jephthah to court. That is what is meant by they drove him out over the inheritance. They took him to court, and the elders of Gilead would have presided over this court, and they sided with Jephthah's brothers. That is why Jephthah accused the leaders of hating him. If this was a private family matter, then the leaders of Gilead would never have been involved or had anything to do with it. This was obviously settled in court with these same leaders ruling in favor of Jephthah's brothers. The result of that decision is that Jephthah went and lived in Tob. This city hasn't been positively identified yet, but it is thought to be somewhere east of Gilead. Now, there is another parallel uh, to Abimelech's story here. Uh, For Abimelech, he hired worthless and reckless fellows to follow him. Apparently, Jephthah was a better leader because he didn't have to hire them. He just attracted worthless fellows. They just followed him. Uh, Where it says they went out with him is probably a reference to criminal activity. That's right. Jephthah is likely a crime boss or gang leader. So in the moment of distress, the elders of Gilead turn to a crime boss. Now, let me take a moment and just talk about the nature of leadership. Much has been written about leadership as a skill and that anybody can become a better leader or a leader at all uh, because leadership is a set of skills. And I mostly agree with that statement. But my experience tells me that there are people out there that seem to have the inside track. They seem to have a little more raw talent and ability to work with than others. And while we can all grow in our leadership and we can all learn skills uh, that help us in our leadership to lead other people, there are people out there who just seem to operate more naturally in this gifting. And maybe they've never gone to school. Maybe they are not recognized in life as uh, a leader. Maybe they don't even recognize it in their own life because it's never been fully developed all the way. But just because people aren't using their leadership gifting and ability uh, for the right purposes 
doesn't mean they're not effective leaders. Jephthah was obviously an effective leader. Otherwise, people wouldn't have naturally followed him. And out of all the people in the whole land of Gilead and beyond, Jephthah is the one name that came to the leaders of Gilead as the guy who can obviously help us out here, even with all of his baggage. Now, that is a testament to his ability and his reputation. Now, they interacted uh, with the elders, uh, or the interaction with the elders is kind of very reminiscent to the interaction that the elders have with God in the previous chapter. Now, they're seeking help from God, but God rebuffed them. Uh, They repeated and modified their request, and that is exactly what happened when they came to Jephthah. They asked him for help. He said, why are you turning to me now? Because obviously, you've treated me in a way that shows that you hate me and don't want me to be around. But the people continued with their request because, again, they know that this guy is a good leader. He's got the the ability to do what they they want. Uh, So they repeat their request, but they kind of change it a little. See, the initial request may have even been a little offensive to Jephthah, because basically they asked him to be their leader. That's their first request is that you will lead us or be our leader. And when he pushed back, then they invited him to be their head. Now, in English, it sounds like total semantics, but in the Hebrew, these are two different words with leader being somewhat lesser than head. So, Their initial offer to him was significant, but it wasn't going all the way, and maybe he picked up on that. Uh, This, of course, is just an introduction, maybe, to how shrewd Jephthah really is. He recognizes that he can get more out of this situation, which probably is due to his natural negotiating skills and maybe his uh, criminal experience. So once they had a deal, they made Jephthah the head and the leader over all the people. Now, this again is reminiscent of Abimelech's story, who was made king by the leaders of Sechem. The fact that the writer has already drawn several parallels to Abimelech shows us that he's throwing some shade on Jephthah. Jephthah is not as bad as Abimelech, and he does actually accomplish some good for the people. But by the end of this story, he's going to, be, he's going to prove to be a bit more like Abimelech than he is like, say, Othniel or uh, Deborah or Deborah and Barak. So that's the kind of, is he a villain, is he a hero thing is going to play out here. At the end of this section where it says that he spoke all his words before the Lord, uh, we shouldn't necessarily take that to mean that he was speaking to the Lord. We should just take that to mean that the Lord was witness to the things that he did say. Uh, some commentators will go so far as to say that he is, he's just giving the appearance of being religious, but it really was not for the Lord and really more a show for the people. Kind of like at the end of the State of the Union address where just about every president will say something like, and may God bless these United States of America. Now, Uh, Do they really believe in God? Uh, Which God are they referring to? Do they really mean that in the foolish, you know, Judeo-Christian sense? Well, that's not really for us to uh, decide. But here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Judges is maybe giving us a little glimpse 
that all is not well, even though it may seem like it's okay right now. Well, let's read on Judges uh, chapter 11, verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Now, earlier I mentioned the shrewdness of Jephthah. Uh, He showed that he was shrewd in the way he dealt uh, with the leaders of Gilead. And now he's going to show that again in how he deals with the king of the Ammonites. Instead of just putting together an army and trying to outflank them or come up with some brilliant military maneuver, he at least tries to diffuse the situation peacefully uh, using words. Again, this guy is a good negotiator, and I'm not going to read all of the back and forth that he has with the king of the Ammonites, but basically it goes a bit like this. Uh, Jephthah asks, hey, what's your problem? And the king of the Ammonites says, well, you took uh, our land once you came uh, out of Egypt. And Jephthah then responds by giving him a history lesson and basically telling him, listen, uh, we didn't take your land. Uh, Actually, we asked several different groups to let us go through their land peacefully, uh, but they wouldn't. So we had to go around here and around there. And when we came to the uh, Ammonite land, Uh, Your king at the time, Shihon, uh, he would not let us through. In fact, he did not think that we would peacefully go through the land. And so he attacked Israel and Israel won that battle. So if your God, Kamesh, wanted uh, your people to have that land and he was more powerful than our God, then you would still have it. Uh, But since our God, Yahweh, gave us the land, we won it in battle fair and square. Well, that sounds like a pretty good language, a pretty good argument there. And then he ends it by basically saying, listen, it's been 300 years. You haven't said anything about this in 300 years. Why are you coming at us now? Okay. So he feels as though uh, they have an honest, uh, they have an honest uh, uh, claim on the land because they won it in battle. Their God showed himself to be stronger than the God of the Ammonites. Well, of course, this didn't sit well uh, with the king of the Ammonites, but at least it shows that Jephthah has a pretty good knowledge uh, of the basic details of the history of his people. You know, he kind of knows the story and the ins and outs. Here's the thing. You can read the Bible stories and not allow the Bible stories to read you. You can know all the information of the basic Bible stories from cover to cover, but never allow the Word of God to truly take root in your heart and bear fruit. Well, Jephthah knew the stories, but from the life that he had lived as a crime boss, and to some degree the things we're going to see him do later on in this story, it's not all that clear that the Word of God had a transformative uh, effect on his life. Well, the long and short of it is that the king of the Ammonites didn't like uh, the history lesson, and so they decide to fight, and the Bible says that he basically just didn't listen uh, to Jephthah. Let's pick it up on verse 29. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Meninth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So here's where things start to get a little dicey in Jephthah's story. We have two statements that show uh, somehow God was involved with this, and that even helped that He even helped Jephthah. I mean, in verse twenty-nine, it clearly says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and verse thirty-two clearly says that the Lord gave the Ammonites into his hand. Obviously, God helped Jephthah, but why? Now, it, Jephthah is not God's chosen person. Jephthah had not been particularly righteous person up to this point, and it just does not appear that he is kind of after this point all that much, and yet God seems to use him anyway. See, sometimes out of God's sheer mercy and grace upon our lives, he helps us anyway. Sometimes he helps us even through ungodly leaders, and he causes them to make some good choices and do some good things that are actually beneficial for God's people. But that does not necessarily mean that God's blessing is on everything that they do and represent. Sometimes God helps us to be more effective, but it's not because we deserve it or we've earned it in any particular way. In this instance, You have a crime boss who's been handpicked by the people, and yet God's Spirit clearly enables him to be effective at taking out the Ammonite threat against the people of God. And God gives him a great victory. And so we have sandwiched in between these two things, these two good things, that the Spirit of the Lord was on him and that God's hand gave him victory. We have something sandwiched in between, and it's kind of an odd thing. And it's this vow that uh, Jephthah made. So after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, yet before God gave him the victory, Jephthah, he kind of offered a strange vow. It really is a vow that has everything to do with human sacrifice and perhaps a little bit of manipulation. First, he committed uh, to offer up to the Lord whatever came out of his house to meet him when he returned from the battle in peace. Well, that could never refer to livestock uh, because they wouldn't have necessarily lived in the house uh, with him, and they certainly wouldn't have been the first thing to come out the door. That would be odd uh, for an animal uh, to come out the door first as he's uh, arriving home. So the expectation on Jephthah's part would have always been that upon his arrival, a person was going to come through the door to meet him. Uh, and this person, whoever it was, is going to be someone that he's going to offer up to the Lord. This person could have been his wife. 
Uh, it could have been a servant. He had worthless people who followed uh, him. He was a crime boss, so it's not unrealistic to think uh, that he had servants in his uh, household. And furthermore, he said that uh, whoever this person was, he, he wasn't just going to offer it up to the Lord, uh, but that it was going to be a burnt offering. So this person that comes out of his door, whoever this person is, they're going to burn as an offering to God. Now, did God ever speak that to Jephthah or ever bless that or ever say, sure, I'll accept that offering? No, actually, God in this story is very silent and he never actually speaks to Jephthah or about Jephthah anywhere in this story. Uh, God does not speak anywhere in chapter uh, 11. Now, I know that this story is a bit hard for us to uh, swallow because it's uncomfortable. But here's the thing. God is very clear about how he wants to be worshiped. And we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting at verse 30 through 32. It says, take care that you be not ensnared uh, to follow them, them being the the people in the land after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord, your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates. They have done for their gods for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Well, this is Jephthah. I mean, God would not be pleased with human sacrifice. It says it right there. And yet somehow, in Jephthah's mind, he thinks that this is a sacrifice unto the Lord, and it would in some way entice God to do uh, whatever it is that he uh, wants him to do. I mean, this is some serious spiritual confusion uh, here, but it kind of represents the people. The interesting thing is that the Ammonite god Kamesh was well known for human sacrifice. It is one of the ways that that particular god uh, was worshipped. And so in a way, Jephthah is trying to worship his god Yahweh in the same way that the Ammonites worship their god Kamesh. Nowhere does God delight in this or celebrate it or want this or honors this sacrifice. This is either an attempt to manipulate God, which is often how the other nations dealt with their gods, or it's just naive confusion on Jephthah's part that he has mixed pagan worship and the way that they did things uh, with worship unto Yahweh, unto God. And yet this is something that God clearly finds abhorrent. Either way, this is bizarre. It is one of the most bizarre things uh, in the Bible, and yet God still, still knowing that, uh, he still gives Jephthah success, and he allows him to overcome the Ammonite army. And again, that is a testament to God. That is not a testament to Jephthah's personal holiness. Now, let's read on in verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become 
the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, and she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had said. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now, this is wild, okay? Now, I have two daughters, so this just, you know, it blows my mind as one of the most disturbing things uh, that's actually in the scriptures. Now, there are a few others, but I won't take you there today. Now, obviously, Jephthah made his vow not considering even the possibility that his daughter would actually be the first one out the door. Um, his daughter is pretty amazing. Um, because she does not push back on her dad. Uh, she, this family is obviously religious because they understand the power of a vow uh, to God, and even she honors that, which that just uh, blows my mind. Okay, So Jephthah, even though he knows the history of his people uh, pretty well, and he's obviously religious. I mean, he knows about Yahweh. He knows how a vow works. Yet it's not clear that he has a deep spiritual relationship with Yahweh. Otherwise, he would know that Yahweh would never want this. Now, where it says that uh, you know she wept for her virginity and all of this, some people have said, well, maybe uh, he just made her a nun. Okay, maybe he just you know let her go into some religious order or something like that, so that she never. Uh, had children. But that would actually violate uh, Jephthah's vow. His vow was to offer it as a burnt offering, which means that when she came back, he burned her up. He killed his daughter uh, in the fire, okay? Um, She wept for her virginity uh, because, you know, lineage is very important. It's important for everybody, but it's important in a Hebrew culture. So she's never going to have children or grandchildren to remember her and to carry on uh, her bloodline. And she was her father's uh, only child. Okay, so that's just a way of the writer emphasizing that she never had the opportunity to marry or procreate or have uh, that normal type of legacy that we are accustomed to in the Old Testament. Okay, now she did end up having a legacy because the daughters of Israel did mourn uh, for her four days a year. That became uh, somewhat of a, a tradition. But this is this is tragic. It's barbaric, and it's hard to accept that this happens at the hands of one of the judges of God's people. So that's chapter 12. I'm sorry, that's chapter 11. But Jephthah's story bleeds into uh, a little bit of chapter 12. So let me read a portion of it for you really quickly. The men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call to us? Um, Now I'm going to skip all the way down. Basically, Jephthah fights against 
them. Okay, They were mad. They were going to burn his house. Jephthah fights against them. And here's what it says, um, that they seized uh, these people and at the forge of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Okay, So Jephthah uh, judged Israel for six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the city of Gilead. Now, this is very reminiscent of Gideon's story where the men of Ephraim come and accuse him of of them not uh, being included in the battle the way they wanted to. Gideon diffused the situation by flattering them. Uh, So here we are several generations later and the Ephraimites are still hotheads um, and they don't appreciate that uh, Jephthah didn't include them because they were at least involved or, or feeling the effects of the oppression of the Ammonites, okay? And so here's a guy who in the past has tried to diffuse situations uh, by language, by trying to talk it out, by trying to use his negotiating skills, and yet here, we don't see any of that. Why the change of tactic? Well, this could have either happened uh, right after he had sacrificed his daughter, because that's kind of the way the story reads. But because there was time with her going up and down the mountain, uh, maybe this happened before he sacrificed her, but while he knew he was going to have to do that. As I can imagine, he was probably not in the greatest of emotional states during that time period. Now, that's just my opinion, but I think as, an, as a parent, I think we could all uh, identify with that. This was not a great emotional time for him. So while in other times he would have used his shrewd negotiating skills, here he just gathers his men and goes on a rampage and kills 42,000 of the Ephraimites. That is not how we thought this story would end. Okay, That is not how uh, a judge of Israel should be thought of. Here's a guy who kills his daughter as a human sacrifice, and is responsible for killing 42,000 of his own people. Now, somehow Jephthah did make it into Hebrews chapter 11. There is an honorable mention of him there, but I think it's because he does deserve credit for being willing to step up to the plate and be used by God to protect God's people against the Ammonites. He could have said no, okay? He didn't have to say yes. He could have said, this is your problem, not mine. You don't like me. I don't like you. I don't need this in my life. But he didn't do that. He stepped up to the plate and he led God's people and he won a great victory. But that doesn't mean that he had a great relationship with God. Actually, it's kind of complicated and confusing. Is he a hero? Is he a villain? Is he both? Because instead of being known as a great deliverer of God's people, He's known as the guy who made a human sacrifice to Yahweh, a thing that is abhorrent to Yahweh, and who slaughtered 42,000 of his own people. Now, the end of this chapter gives us a brief rundown on the final uh, three minor judges, Ebzen, Elon, and Abdon, and we're not going to talk much about them because not much is said about them, just that they uh, were judges and they kind of bridge this gap until we get uh, into Samson's story. Well, what is the takeaway from today? Well, Jephthah made a vow to God, but it was a pagan vow made in a pagan way. Contrary to the way our society thinks today, we cannot worship God in whatever way is most comfortable to us or whatever way feels best to us. 
God is the one who has provided very specific instructions on how he wants to be worshipped, how he wants to be interacted with. If you want God to honor your prayers, your acts of worship and service, then they need to follow the pattern that Scripture lays out for us, both in the commands of God and in the numerous positive examples from biblical figures who clearly had the blessing of God on their lives. Well, that's all we have for you today on this episode, and next time we will hop into the story of Samson. It's a good story, also another uh, crazy, kind of conflicted story, but I can't wait to walk with you through it on our next episode of By the Verse.